How is everyone this glorious evening? We are good. Right on. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Joel. So by way of reminder, we'll be in Joel chapter 2. We're going to uh, do 18 to 27 tonight, which is God's response. So you have... In the book of Joel, you have Joel dealing with the day of the Lord. And he's describing this day of judgment that's going to come. There will be a day of God's judgment. And then he's he's, he's presenting to us the things that will, the pattern that will happen when God's judgment comes. So what is that pattern? It's going to be a call to repentance, acts of repentance, and then God's deliverance. Or... There'll be a call to repentance, no response, and judgment will fall, which is the more common result uh, as we've worked our way through the Old Testament. Although there are cases, if you remember, there's a book called the book of Jonah, which we'll get to here shortly. And as we work through the book of Jonah, we have the message of judgment given and a call for repentance and a nation responds in repentance and we see God's deliverance. He is relenting from the judgment to come and uh, the people passing then from a position of judgment to favor. So this is a pattern, prophetic pattern that the book of Joel lays out for us. Now in Joel chapter 2 beginning at verse 18, we've looked at two examples, two metaphors, if you will, of God's judgment and they're described as locusts. So the Lord says, I'm going to send the locusts, remember, and they're going to eat everything. And it'll be, he, there are four different classes, doesn't really make any difference, but the hopping locust, the chewing locust, the crawling locust, and the flying locust, I think. And we'll see them in a minute. And they're going to, basically, they're going to eat everything. What, what one group doesn't take, the next group is going to take. And, the next, and all this is describing <clears throat> God's judgment. And it's building to the point of God's response. In chapter 2, verse 18, we have the Lord responding to the repentance of the people. So you have an example of what happens when the people repent and then you're going to, it's going to be God's voice in essence, his, him speaking through Joel about uh, his response to the repentant people. And it's part of my favorite part of the book of Joel. So uh, in fact, I think we have wedding rings with one of these verses on it. So um, as we as we work our way through, that's God's response and his ability to redeem and restore. And every time we talk about God's judgment, you're going to have the Lord lay out in that section also his ability to redeem and restore. So he never talks about one without the other, but there is a requirement. And we'll, we're going to talk a little bit about that as we work our way through. So we have the Lord's response. He's going to have six, uh, six things, six parts of his response that's going to come. And the first one we see in verse 18, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Now, when we talk about the jealousy of the Lord, hopefully I'll get past this tonight. But when we talk about the jealousy of the Lord, it's really an important concept for us to understand in, in our time, in the way that the word jealousy is used, there's hardly a concept where jealousy is good. More often, we see what we would consider wicked jealousy, not godly jealousy. So we need to understand 
what, it, what is godly jealousy and how does godly jealousy work? At Biola, there's a professor. His name is Eric uh, Thonis, Thon, I can't say his last name. <clears throat> he teaches, uh, he's the head of the theology department at Biola. He did a class and he wrote a book, best book I've ever read on the subject of godly jealousy. It's called Godly Jealousy, A Theology of Intolerant Love. And which is a pretty provocative title, if you think about it, especially in our day. Uh, incredible book uh, going through scripture and dealing with, you know, you, you realize that God says his name is jealous, right? So one of the attributes of God is the attribute of jealousy. And so understanding what's meant by that. So he defines it in his book. Let me share that definition with you. It goes like this. The ardent desire to maintain exclusive devotion within a relationship in the face of challenge to the exclusivity of devotion. So it is the ardent desire to have someone faithful. Well, if we were looking for a spouse... None of us are looking for an unfaithful spouse, right? Nobody's saying, you know what? I want to find an unfaithful man or an unfaithful woman. So when we look at the jealousy of God, it is a, a desire, jealous desire for that which he desires, an exclusive devotion, right? God wants, does he just want your Sunday? I mean, uh, Maybe some of you have experienced relationships where the person you're trying to have a relationship with says, you know, I'm all yours, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But for most people, that's not going to be enough, right? Because we're looking for the same thing, right? We're, when we look for love, when we look for human love, connection with another person, we want, we want, uh, we, we want to see the, just the reality, right? The, the devotion is, is complete. The same devotion we have is what's coming back, right? I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're looking for. And so when we look at this, we, we, want to see, we want to see and understand there are necessary requirements to godly jealousy. Here are the necessary requirements to godly jealousy. You have to have, one, a lover, to a beloved, that's the two parts that are providing uh, devotion to one another. And the third part is a rival. The fourth part is expressed uh, infidelity in some way and an emotional response to that infidelity. Now, if you think about the relationship with God and the nation of Israel, and for that matter, the, the Lord with us in the church. None of those things have changed. Is there a rival to the love of God? Did Jesus ever talk about a rival love? Did he ever talk about uh, things like, for example, uh, you can't love this world and the things of this world because if you do, the love of the Father is not in you? There's, a, there's an exclusivity to the love Relationship, And I know nowadays it's a very popular message that, that God's love is unconditional. There's no condition to God's love. But you need to recognize uh, God's love is not tolerant of a rival. 
And we actually should be all right with that because our love's not tolerant of a rival either. So when we look at this, when, it, when the scriptures talks about the, the jealousy of God, we want to understand. What, what does that mean? Okay, one, he is the only one to be worshipped. <clears throat> There's no room for someone or something else to be worshipped. Exodus 20 verse 5. You shall not bow down to, to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So this is how God is describing himself. He doesn't want to share your heart with another uh, point of worship. He won't be tolerant of that. He's not tolerant of that. He alone will be or is to be worshipped. He will also have mercy on his people. The Lord is a good and merciful God. It says the Lord, the house of, of Israel, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 39, <clears throat> The house of Israel shall know I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and I gave them into the hand of their adversaries and they fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness, their transgression. I hid my face from them. Therefore, says the Lord God, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. I will have mercy on the house of Israel I will be jealous for my holy name. So again, you have the Lord using this term. He is a God who will extend mercy. This is the whole point of the book of Joel. Is there a judgment day? Yes. Is there a call to re for repentance prior to judgment? Yes. And if man responds by repenting, what does God give? Mercy and grace. And ultimately... His presence as well. Uh, he is a jealous God that will take vengeance on his enemies. We can read about that in Nahum chapter 1, 2 through 7. He is a jealous God that will restore Jerusalem. Zechariah 1, 12 to 16. So he wants the people to understand. He wants them to see his attitude for Israel. He is a jealous God. He will not share you with a rival. And again, that should not be hard to understand. But it should be a cause of concern for us. If we look at the Old Testament and the rivals that the nation of Israel had between themselves and God, they had all this idolatry. You remember? They worshiped a God called Baal. All Baal means is Lord. It's not, a, it's not a proper name. It just means Lord. They had other, other things that, to which they were loyal. The Bible uses a word in the Old Testament for love and faithfulness. It's called chesed. <clears throat> so one of the ways to define that love is a loyal love. It's a loyal love between two parties and this is what god god is going to give you loyal love 
And what he wants in response is loyal love. I don't know of a society anywhere where people celebrate people that are not loyal, that are disloyal. I don't know any of us who say, hey, that's, that's my favorite kind of friend. I want the most disloyal friend I can find. Right? So we should be able to comprehend and understand these ideas. So the first thing that the Lord's response is, is his attitude toward his people. And that attitude is jealousy. He wants, he wants faithfulness from his people. From the land, he wants, he wants faithfulness from us. Now the second answer he's going to give, in beginning in verse 19, is about this army of locusts, the metaphor of the judgment of God. It says in verse 19, the Lord answered <coughs> and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. His first answer about this judgment that's coming is God saying, I'm going to be the one who satisfies you. I'm the one who will provide you your grain. That's for bread. That which sustains us. Your wine, which speaks of joy. And your oil, which speaks of presence. So he's going to be your sustainer. He's going to be that which brings you joy. And his presence will be with you. His presence alongside. He says, I will, and, or, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach. So the judgment will stop. I will remove the northerner far from you. Now, this is a phrase the Old Testament uses often. And, and you and I, we have discussed this before. Um, <clears throat> there are, are a lot of people who even today will sell prophecy books about an invasion uh, coming from Russia against Israel that sets off the seven-year tribulation period. And that may or may not be true, but that, that is not what I believe Ezekiel's talking about. When Ezekiel talks about it, he, they always use the term the enemy from the north. When God's judgment comes, the Bible uses a metaphor for that judgment, the enemy from the north. Babylon was called the enemy from the north, but they're from the east. How is Babylon called the enemy from the north? Because they were the tool of God's judgment. So maybe Russia's going to be the bad guy. It seems like they like to be bad guys. I don't know. I'm sure if you ask Afghanistan, they would say we're the bad guy. So, you know, nowadays in the current world environment we live in, I'm not sure how to tell the white hats from the black hats, if you know what I mean. I don't know who's real, who's not real. I don't know who's telling the truth and who's lying. Do you? So... But I know when the Bible uses a phrase, the enemy from the north, it's a, it is a figure of speech for God's judgment coming against Israel. So he said, when he says, I'm going to remove your enemy from the north, it doesn't have anything to do with Russia, which is far north of Jerusalem, but was never a, a, an enemy of Jerusalem. Are you bringing me something to drink? Is it a monster? Thank you so much. I'll try not to, <clears throat> I haven't, I haven't talked for like 10 days, so I have been eating bugs for sure. 
So anyways, th this is a figure of speech. So when God says that, he's, it's saying, I'm going to remove judgment. That, that judgment, like against Nineveh, you guys remember in the book of Jonah, God said, no judgment, I won't bring it. Later on in Nahum, he does, but not in Jonah. So we're seeing him say, I'm going to uh, remove the northerner far from you, drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard to the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Ultimately saying, I'm going to get, I'm going to, I will protect you. So if you are unfaithful to the Lord and you won't repent of your unfaithfulness, this is the nation of Israel. You won't repent of your unfaithfulness and I'm going to bring the enemy. And when that enemy comes against you and times get hard and difficult and the locusts show up, we have a tendency to remember the Lord. And so you cry out to the Lord and the Lord says, repent. You've been unfaithful to me. You, you cheated on me and I'm willing to forgive you, but I, I want you to, I want to hear you're sorry. And so we, we repent of that. We turn from our sin. We turn to the Lord and he relents. He, once again, his caring hands are there because he loves us and he does not want us to reach a point of no return. This is all loving action, not unloving. This is all from the hands of the God who loves us. So he provides this answer. I will save you from the army that is coming. <clears throat> the third thing he's going to tell them in verse 21, that he is able to remove all their fear. 366 times, I think, you guys count it, and if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll, I'll recant. Uh, 366 times the Bible says, do not be afraid. It's one for every day and leap year. So we need to be reminded not to fear. The Lord said, I have not given you a spirit of fear, but that's right. So he's, he's saying, look, it's not about being afraid. I'm going to give you a, a spirit of power of love of a sound mind i want you to to be able to stand and so he says i'm going to teach you i i have the ability it's god that's able to get us to a place where we're not afraid it's not something you're going to work up in yourself anybody ever tried to work up in yourself not being afraid how about have you tried to do it while you're afraid yeah it's not we it doesn't happen right so it's a, this is something that is an ability that God grants. Look what he says. <clears throat> Look what he says in verse 21. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Now, if you want to do an interesting study, do a study on that phrase, great things. Because that phrase is pretty incredible. The Bible is, this is how the Bible will use that phrase in conjunction with who God is. So first it will say there's no one like him. There's no one else like him. Psalm 71, 19. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You have done great things, and who is like you? Think of the things that the Lord has done in your life. His unsearchable. We, we can't fathom. Isaiah 55 says it like this. His ways are higher than our ways. Amen? Do you have God figured out? Do you have all the ways God, the things God allows, the things he doesn't allow, the way he moves, you have, if you have all that figured out? No, we don't. Why? Because he is unsearchable. 
So we cannot. His ways are higher than our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how high his ways are above our ways. So the scripture lays out for us in Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. And his greatness, his great things are unsearchable. We can't, we can't fully understand all of that. <clears throat> his great things cause joy in the hearts of God's people. In Psalm 126, verse 1, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream a dream. And our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nation, the Lord has done great things. This is the a, a song of the exiles when they return back into the land. We see that uh, these great things cause God's people to praise his name, to praise him. In 1 Chronicles 16, verse 25, it says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering, come before him, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad, the earth rejoice, and let them say among all the nation, the Lord reigns. This is the response of those who have experienced the great things that God does. So in the response of the people when they repent, As they lift their eyes back into the heavens, the Lord lets them know, I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous for you. I I will be faithful to you, and I want your faithfulness. He also wants them to, to understand that he'll protect them from the armies, the judgment to come. His if he took the hedge down, he can put the hedge back. So he's able to protect them and carry them through that time. And he can remove their fear. If we will, we, there's, there's a, anytime we're afraid, we're making a choice. We make a choice either to trust the Lord or to trust ourselves. And if I trust myself, I'm going to be afraid. Now, if I trust the Lord, I, I want to have courage. That's what the Lord called to Joshua. He said to Joshua, don't be afraid be of good courage, which means fear didn't disappear, but I'm going to stand in the face of the fear, trusting God before whatever it is I'm afraid of, whether it's Goliath or the army from the north or whatever, whatever the, whatever the situation is, I'm making that choice to trust him, to put my hope in him. And then he's going to make... <clears throat> He's going to make another uh, 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 challenge in verse 22. He's going to make the appeal to his people to rejoice. He says, be glad, O children of Zion, Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. So remember what happened. In the metaphor of God's judgment, the locust came through and ate everything. Nothing's left, no stubble, nothing's, it's all gone. 
The people repent, cry out to the Lord. The Lord responds, says, look, I'm jealous for you. He's explaining what happened. You're unfaithful to me. If you'll return and be faithful to me, uh, I'm going to take care of you. I'll remove <coughs> the army from the north, and I'll remove your fear, and I'm going to give you the rain you need so that those, that which has been lost can come back. I'm bringing, I'm, I'm restoring fortunes. And how does he describe that? By the early rains. There were two rains that the people would have, the early and the latter rains. So he's saying, you're not going to have to hope that the latter rains come. You, I'm going to give you the early rains. I'm going to give you that which you need that will sustain you and that will cause you to rejoice because I am with you. Ultimately, God's promise, I, I hope that you guys can see this, God's promise in his response to the people is, if you'll return to me, I will be with you. And if I'm with you, you won't have to worry about all these things. I'm with you. My presence is here. You'll, you'll have what you need. Because really what we need is not the early or the latter rain. What we need is not a bumper crop. What we need is not more money in the bank account. What we need is his presence. That's what is missing in our life when we've been unfaithful. We feel that, that dryness, that, that uh, cold. And, and if we repent and return to the Lord, he says, my presence is right here. I'm here. I will be with you. I will be that comfort. I will be that peace. And so you'll be able to rejoice. He poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. <clears throat> the threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years the locusts ate. That is on my wife and my wedding rings because there was a lot of years the locusts came through and ate up our lives but God made a promise and I took that promise to heart the Lord said return to me and I will give you back the years the locusts ate he didn't say he'd give me back the stuff the locusts ate he said he'd give me back the time anybody feel like you got wasted time in your life like, oh, I'd really like to get them, them, those years back. I don't know how that looks, but I know my life today, my marriage today, the relationship that I have with my wife today, there was nobody anywhere that gave any hope for any of that. But God said, I'll give it back. I'll give you back those years. And he was faithful. Because he is faithful. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And he was faithful. So this is the, the verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Joel. I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent. So when we get off track, what is it that the Lord's saying? You get off the path and you start running toward destruction. God doesn't say that's it for you. <clears throat> I'm just going to throw you away. Or is anybody thankful God doesn't throw people away? 
He says, I'm going to send a devastator to your life. And in that devastation, maybe you'll call on my name. And God says, and I will tell you, I want your faithful love. And so we will either change our path or continue running down the path of destruction. That'll be our choice, right? Everybody gets to make them. Or we can respond. And when we do, the Lord responds with his presence. And his promise is, Jesus, there's a line. It's my favorite line in the Passion. I'm sure most of you guys have seen the Passion. <clears throat> you know, I'm not saying the Passion is theologically perfect. It's just very emotional show to watch about the crucifixion of Christ. There's a line that is put into the mouth of Jesus that he says to his mother which is taken from Revelation. Now, it's misplaced there because of some theological issues uh, and differences between Catholicism and Protestantism, and I don't need to get into that, but here's what he says. He looks at his mother in the midst of carrying the cross, and he says, See, I make all things new. Now, when he actually says that is in the book of Revelation. And, he, and he's saying that when he's wiping away the tears from our eyes and all the suffering and the th struggles that we've been through in our whole life. And now you're standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and you're looking into his face and all the things you've suffered and maybe all the questions you've had about all the whys of life. And Jesus is looking at you and saying, see, I make all things new. So whatever things have been lost or disrupted or or destroyed or broke us or whatever, whatever adjectives we want to use, Jesus, the promise we have in Christ is that he's able to restore and give you back the years the locusts ate. And no one on that day standing before their Savior, Jesus Christ, and, and hearing these words from his lips is going to be disappointed. No one's going to say, that's not worth it. Everyone will respond, amen, Lord, right and true are your judgments. Because he knows, he knows us better than we know ourselves, doesn't he? And so he's able in that way to, to make this appeal to us. He is the one who replenishes. He is the one who redeems he is the one who restores. It's a beautiful promise here in Joel. The fifth thing is we see his love will come in response from his people. So the same people who were unfaithful will be able to express that which we have struggled our whole life expressing. Does anybody feel like you have honestly loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? But there will be a day, the adoration that pours out of you, which will be a gift to you from your Savior, will come. We, my wife uses a phrase, what do you call it? Love, love, spewed, no, skewed, not spewed, splat. <clears throat> skewed, she uses this term, skewed love. Like our love, because we are 
broken, sinful beings, right, who, who struggle to be what we're supposed to be. And as believers, we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he empowers us, and we are not what we were, but we're not yet what we will be. Amen? So when we think about that, we, our love is skewed. It's not quite all it should be. At least that's how I feel. And so when the Lord says, look, his adoration is going to flow, he says, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. You want to see that? Revelation chapter 4 and 5. When you, when you get home tonight, open up your Bibles, read Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We're in the throne room in heaven. There is a lamb sitting on the throne, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ on the throne, and we are singing his praises. On that day, you're not going to have a hard time loving your God. It's going to flow out of his redemption, his restoration, his replenishing. It's going to flow from him. That's why Paul would say, what do we have that he hasn't given us? What are we able to express that hasn't already been a gift that, that God has granted us. And so in that we have <clears throat> this response, this adoration that will come from the people. Listen to how he describes it. Uh, you will be satisfied. You will eat in plenty and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And you will never again be put to shame. This is not talking about, oh, we, we got through a trial and we had a rough band, but there's probably other trials coming. This is a description like the marriage supper of the Lamb. There are no more battles coming. It's finished. We're looking in his face. We're experiencing all that he has, and that adoration will flow from us. And the last thing in God's response is his will will have been done. It will be finished. Listen to what he says, verse 27. I love this. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. When we read that promise in the book of Revelation, he says, I will dwell with you. You will be my people, and I will be your God. He's saying, I'll be in your midst. Now, there's a sense in which we have been given a down payment, a guarantee of that reality, right? The Holy Spirit that is with us as believers in Jesus Christ. He has given us his Holy Spirit, and we have that, that nugget of his presence. But there will be a day when you will have his actual, real, complete, total being before you. It will not be something that is in some way, <clears throat> well, Paul describes it like this. Now we look through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Like you're looking through, if you ever go hunting and you're looking through, maybe you're, you're looking for a deer, you're looking for elk, and you're looking through binoculars, and after you know an hour of doing that, you get a little bug-eyed. And every little bush starts to look like something else, and... Just can't quite see that clearly. But there will be a day where you're not going to have to look through binoculars or a telescope or a spotting scope. 
you're just going to be able to stand face to face. Look into his eyes. What will you see there? I wouldn't trade that day for nothing. There's no, there's nothing you could, you could tempt me with that would cause me to say, I don't want to see that day. Man, I, I want to see my Savior's face. I will be in your midst. His presence will be known. His preeminence will be acknowledged. He is a God of gods and Lord of lords. And his protection will be clear. Why? My people shall never again be put to shame. No more. Again, if you look at the book of Revelation, um, Revelation, I want to say Revelation chapter 6, and we, we go to the martyrs beneath the, the throne that, that cry out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, <clears throat> until you will <clears throat> avenge our blood <clears throat> on the world? The Lord, in describing them there and in describing them also in the book of Hebrews, the martyrs in Hebrews chapter 11, he uses phrases like, the world's not worthy. He uses things like, the sun will never burn your face again. You'll never be thirsty again. You'll never be hungry again. I'll never, you'll never be out of my sight again. Or I don't, theologically, we've never been out of his sight, but you guys get the idea outside of of that physical presence that where we can see touch hear feel Jesus and that's an incredible promise that he gives this is God's response to what happens when people repent what does the bible tell us happens when one sinner turns when a sinner turns from his sin and turns to his savior what happens in heaven the Bible says all heaven rejoices, right? All heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. So you will be hard pressed to find an example in scripture of someone who repented and God turned them away. Now there are examples of people who could not repent and did not repent but you will not hear someone call on the name of the Lord in repentance where God says, ah, I'm not going to help you. Because he's a God who responds when his people repent. When his people return. When his people call on his name. Now, the rest of the book of Joel that we're going to go through in the next, <clears throat> probably take us two weeks to finish. It's, there's three poems at the end. And the one you're most uh, um, familiar with in the book of Joel's is the first poem. That's the one that Peter uses on the day of Pentecost, right? He says, haven't you heard the prophet Joel talk about this? This day, which you now see in here, the spirit of God being poured out on the day of Pentecost. So, so we'll look. I, I'm going to try to get two poems in one. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe not. We might have three more weeks, but. We'll look at those last three poems. But all of these, the whole point of the book of Joel is not a specific prophet at a specific time pointing to a specific sin. It's a pattern of what happens in disobedience, God's call to repentance, and when people respond. And, and what God will do in those situations. And that's why the book of Joel is such a hopeful book 
for us. Amen? Won't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the time we have, Lord, to worship you, to adore you, to study your word together, Lord. I pray that we could just come to understand, to realize, to recognize who you are. That we would understand that there's there's a reason why, you know, the, the church catches this rap about you know, maybe maybe we don't do it right. I don't I don't exactly know, but we we catch this rap about being intolerant. But our God is intolerant. He he won't he won't share his position with a rival. And Lord, I, I pray that we could just come to understand that there is the Lord has laid out for us the path, the route of salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That there is a, 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 a way. But we, we turn from our sin. We can't have our sin and our Savior. We can't have a rival for the throne of our heart. There is one throne, one king, and there's only room for one in that place. And I pray that for those of us who are here tonight, that, that we know the one on that throne is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we strive to be men and women who walk in faithful love to him. Following him as he bid us come. Come, follow me. That we would be men and women who are quick when we recognize we've fallen off the path. We're quick to confess our sins and be forgiven. To return to that place of following the Lord. To be in that place, uh, Lord, where your presence is the, the strongest. To follow you, Lord, with an undivided heart, so that the Lord might say of us what he said of David, there is a man after my own heart, which literally means he has an undivided heart. I'm the one on the throne there. God, I just pray that we would recognize and understand that being in your presence, there's no place better. So God, I pray that you watch over and keep us, Lord, as we read your word and study your word. Help us grow. Help us become more like you. Help us not hold fast to some tradition or some issue that, that stops us from being able to hear you. May we not hold the traditions of men, but rather the commandments of God. And may you, God, be glorified as we follow you in these days that you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.